Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. When Eugene Robinson was a teenager, he discovered punk rock in New York. It was the 70s, and the genre had not yet found its way into the mainstream. At the beginning of the 80s, he relocated to California and found a new genre emerging, hardcore. He dove in headfirst as a fan, a musician, he was the lead singer of Whipping Boy, and as a journalist. He interviewed a lot of these bands and covered some infamous punk and hardcore shows. We brought on Eugene to discuss this time period. He has a memoir coming out in August about his punk years. It's called A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight Into Murderer's Row. It's available now for pre-order. This is probably the most intense guest we've ever had. Oh yeah, definitely. Eugene Robinson, known for the band uh, Oxbow and uh, Whipping Boy and their uh, book Fight. Everything you wanted to know about fighting, but didn't get want to get your ass kicked for asking. I think that's the title. Is that right? Everything you want to know about ass kicking, uh, and then didn't want to get your ass kicked for asking. That might be it. Okay. Well, hopefully Eugene doesn't beat us up. <laughs> you remember, though, the first time we met Eugene was at a, a Narboot show. We did. I, I recognized him in the audience, and I went up to him and said, are you Eugene Robinson? And then he went, yeah, I am. And then I gave him a big hug because I'm a big fan. Did you invite him to do the podcast back then? No, we didn't have a podcast back then. You've written this book called A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight Into Murderer's Way. Row. <laughs> Murder. Oh, I was like, I bet I'm going to mess up. <laughs> I don't know. I, I write it down and somehow I write it down wrong. It's so bizarre. Well, look, I, I like these difficult titles. I mean, I could <laughs> Yeah, no, I could have just written the fight book, but instead I wrote fight, you know, everything you ever want to know about asking, but afraid you get your asking for asking. It's a mouthful. You've written several books already, but this one's about your uh, punk years, your punk, right? Yes, sort of. Yes. Yeah. So I want to get into, I haven't read it yet because uh, it, it's not available to be read yet, but I do, I am familiar with several of your stories from this era, which I want to talk about, but um, I'm curious why, you know, 
you've written several books and now you're writing this book. I'm, I'm curious how, about that. Yeah, like, it's it, the provenance is is really strange, right? I mean, Adam Parfrey, uh, the son of the the famous character actor Woody Parfrey, who is, some of you may know from uh, Planet of the Apes, was one of his uh, big, big <laughs> roles. Um, he has been asking for years. I, I uh, have known him. Uh, I don't know, forty years, right? He's he's now passed on, but and he'd been asking me to to write a memoir. Mm-hmm. And I, it didn't make any sense to me because I don't. I absolutely, positively, don't think you should lie in your memoir. <laughs> but I was not. I was not. At, I was not in a position at all to tell the truth. And then you know, I figure I've got four kids. They don't really need to be reading this stuff about me. <laughs> you know, um, you know, or for me to tell a story the way I would tell it. So Parfrey died. And um, as a matter of kind of due diligence, I think Christina Ward and uh, his sister, who now run, um, who now run Feral House, had decided to revisit. And Christina even took the unusual step of flying out here to talk to me. And she said, "Listen, <laughs> what are your, what are your, what are your, why are you resisting this?" And I said, you know, all of my filthy, disgusting sex stories, I, I don't think that they really, yeah, no, I don't think, you know, I mean, no, no one wants to hear, you know, my ex-wife at one point screamed at me. She goes like, hey, I'm not one of your gym buddies. I don't want to hear this. And I, I feel pretty certain that she wouldn't want, want me to write it. So, you know, we're divorced, but I figured, okay, you know, I have certain sensitivities now. Christina goes, you know what, you know, you know what, we, we don't want your sex stories either. And I was like, Really? What about the time I? She goes, no, 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 no. We don't want, we don't want any of them. That I said, but you know, let me tell you what interests me about your story: that you were in, based on just a cursory kind of talk with Adam, you know, Adam, with you briefly. You were at interesting places during interesting times, and I, I think your perspective could be. I've read your writing. I think you might be able to give it a look that has thus far not been done like and besides which we don't have the money to pay for you to do an entire life memoir so why don't you do birth through 27 which ultimately puts me at the beginning of oxbow so which carries me from you know birth through the creation of whipping boy you know hardcore and then ends right around the time that that oxbow starts and that'll carry us through quite a lot and i was like yeah I, i can do that i was still you know i marked that as time before I completely lost my mind. So that, 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 that worked, you know? <laughs> that worked quite nicely. Let's get into some of your stories. Um, some of these people might already know just cause you've told them in interviews, but I want to talk about them anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with the infamous myths, misfits story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was at the elite club, which used to be, um, uh, well, it's the Fillmore. It used to be the Fillmore when then during the hardcore days was the Elite Club. And now it's back to being the Fillmore again uh, for San Francisco fans of death and suicide. It is right next to the People's Temple, what used to be the People's Temple, which is now a post office, I believe. So it's always had kind of a weird, <laughs> weird cachet. But it was, you know, might have this theory that any show that you play on the night of a day that begins with rain is good it's it curses the show it's like <laughs> it's happened so many times yeah. if you wait if you wake up and there's sun in the sky you go oh, i'm gonna have a good time tonight and then if you wake up and there's, it's raining you think 
and I'm going to try to have a good time tonight. And these are fundamentally different experiences, trying to have a good time versus having a good time. So we went to San Francisco and I, I have since revived, I've been all over the place in terms of an emotional take on this. And, and I've actually written Danzig subsequent to this event, uh, but I'll get into that in a, in a second. So, yeah, yeah. so, I, so I, 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 we're there at the show and, you know, people are kind of, churlish in a, in a san francisco way right like there's certain things if you were west coast hardcore you know whipping boys for a show there's a fusillade of of you know of spit and bottles and cigarettes and you know anything else that could be thrown and i i couldn't have been happier myself you know just for context for people who don't know i think we're at 1982 yeah like it's 80 81 82 something okay. like that right okay. right so um so they show up it was sparsely attended there weren't tons of people there so and it's a big hall so for the misfits who are used to playing you know packed house, i mean see to pack cbs cbgbs was not that difficult but you know it's a different sensation and um you know people just they just it was it was it was a rite of passage they had to flip shit at the band you know um and uh i don't know where these guys you know if you're on a tour a long time you just don't have the patience for it i mean with oxbow I've savaged people at shows um, because, you know, if it's a five week tour, man, at the end of it, you just don't have the patience to mess around. <laughs> I, I Much like people with epilepsy, I know enough about myself to know I need to warn the promoter. And I've done this before. I said, those guys that are jumping on stage with those other bands before us are playing, putting their back to the band, throwing stuff at the band. You need to make sure your bouncers police those guys are you going to force me to do it? And this is now written into Oxbow contract. But of course, this was not at all, at, at all what was going on in 1982. So this was you, you were there in the capacity of a uh, like you were writing about the show, right? No, I was no, not I had not intended to write about it. I was just an audience member. Oh, you're just an audience member, okay? Yeah. And uh, Hen- Rollins is the one who was big on the Misfits and told me you got called me and said you got to see them. You got used before email, right? So you got to see them. So okay, I go. And um, they people said, ah, fuck you, fuck you. And uh, and then, of course, they made the 100-foot, you know, cl- cliff dive into stupidity with a San Francisco audience because the misfits at that point start saying, ah, you fucking faggots. And it's like, ah, man, you just you can't do that in San Francisco. And apparently there was a backstory which is disputed by Chris Desjardins, Desjardins from um, – uh, flesh eaters who, as a joke, decided to take all these kind of macho Jersey guys to gay bars and <laughs> our, our gay bookstores in San Francisco just to mess with him. Now, I, I've talked to him since, and he said, that's not what happened. So, okay, whatever. But they they busted loose with the, you know, the faggot thing. And then people got angry in earnest and, um, and started throwing, you know, beer cans and so on. And then Tim... Tim, this kid from Berkeley, very small, kind of diminutive character, um, who had ter- done something maybe, but then turned his back to the audience, or turned his back to the band. And Doyle, who was standing right behind him, took off his guitar and wielding it like you know what people call guitars, axes, brought it down on the kid's head. And you could feel—I didn't know this was happening until I could feel the vibrations through the floor and turned. And Tim was fetal, you know, fetal position on the floor with this, you know, this nimbus, the spreading nimbus of blood from his head. And he was, 
I mean, if you've ever seen anybody knocked out, it was worse than that. He was absolutely not moving, not twitching, nothing. And so there was an immediate assumption that he was dead. And then we flipped out. And I think the entirety of, of Whipping Boy was there. And, you know, if you remember Steve, our guitar player, was like six foot seven, 270 pounds. So he and I jumped on the stage, kicked through the bass drum, tore down the banner, chased him off stage, they were, you know, and then were circling the block for like an hour, waiting for them to come out or to get a hold of their, their van or whatever. And uh, we, you know, never got them. But of course, you know, then I went back east because I'm from back east and, you know, went to see you know, matinees at CBs and you know one of the guys that we punched was Googie who was a drummer and you know we talked about it and said yeah, it's unavoidable and you know I never would have uh, as an as a guy in a band now for 40 freaking years you know I understand that you you have to sometimes you know demand a certain quality of respect but you know you got to understand that guitars are heavy you could actually murder somebody with it and nobody is going to a show to be murdered so I the letter I wrote to Danzig was a kind of acknowledgement that I believe that you know what they were doing was artistically valid which was not something I said in 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 the article I wrote you know, um, and so I just wanted to. Ast- I, I still don't, don't find it defensible, almost murdering somebody. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no. I, in that instance, yeah, there are other instances in which I, it's perfectly admissible, but um, <laughs> but in that instance, no. Um, and uh, I never got a response, and I didn't really uh, expect to. But as a journalist of some of some measure, I just thought it it, it, it behooved me to set the record straight. Yeah, because you in in the in the article you wrote about it, you you talked about the incident, and you also basically said that Danzig sucked, or, or yeah. not Danzig, but Misfits. They sucked. They're horrible yeah. band. They sounded yeah. like shit. But you felt like, and I I understand where you come from. I've been a journalist for oh, you know decade and a half. Mm-hmm. You you don't want to like if you're gonna opinion if you're gonna state an opinion if you're gonna talk about something you want to have all your facts straight. Yeah. And if the band didn't sound like shit, and you say that, it kind of like discredits everything else a little bit well what, what bothered me is that i said they were bad artists and yeah. they, they 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 might have been a lot of things they might have been bad people they might have been bad men they might have been all but what i what i re- regretted saying was that they were bad artists because they absolutely were not their their songbook holds up over time and uh, you know for a guy from lodi new jersey whose father said that he sucked and he would never amount to anything and you know <laughs> and he start has been roading for bands and living that lifestyle since he was like 10 the only other person i know who's been in music longer is harley and uh and it's no mistaken that those two are, are friends or known associates and uh they're just different just different types of cats you know it's i mean i'm sure he would say at this point yeah just don't fuck with me but it's not even about fucking with me it's like it's it's more like like this is not only is this it? This is everything. Not interested in anything else. Not doing anything else. There is no plan B. This is my life. I'm sorry you had a bad Thursday, but I don't want you throwing full bottles of beer at my head. Thank you. You know. So. Mm-hmm. And so you were standing right next to Timmy. Yeah. The kid when this happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Did Did you watch it happen? Um, it was, I, I, I saw Doyle take his guitar off and I assumed that he would have done what I was going to do. What I would have done in instance is like, Hey, I get paid with you. (laughs) I get paid with our player. Not it's in our contract. So fuck you. I'm going home. Um, so I saw him take it off 
And then I heard this, you know, felt this thump through the floor, the vibrations um, through the floor. And then I turned and he was standing and, and I knew it was serious because I turned around and the guitar had already made, it had already descended, but the look on Doyle's face was like abject terror. <laughs> like he realized he fucked up. Oh my God. Yes. Immedi- <laughs> immediately. And then, so I followed his eyes to Timmy and then that was then all hell bro- broke loose. So. Wow. Yeah, it was a heavy night. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and keep in mind, keep in mind, people have been getting stabbed with church keys on the dance floor that night. So it was a weird night in total. But that was just like the cherry on the on the on the on the top of the cake. Wait, stab stabbed with church keys? Yeah, you know, I don't want to put anybody on Front Street because she and I are, are friends. But you know, at one point, I'm like you know, walking across the dance floor to go somewhere. And, um, I see, I see her, you know, like this is New York was moshing. So, you know, back then they call it thrashing and she was thrashing with a church key. And, and I thought, Oh, it's just decorative until I saw her catch a couple of people in the face with the church key. I was like, ah, it's a little heavy, a little heavy. <laughs> Yeah, I know. and people were getting mugged in the bathroom. You know, it's it, in the in the in the girls' in the women's room, right? Not this was the uh, men were fairly. It, it was just a lot of lot lot of insanity that night in general. Wow. Yeah, I, I read one thing I didn't know about this, and because I, I was reading about it on a different article, unrelated to your experience with it, is that after the event, after the show, that there was like an unofficial ban of misfits by a lot of the promoters because of it. I didn't know that there was a ban, but you got to understand, I think that was a Paul, a Paul rat show and the kind of security that you would have had to hire to have them come back anytime soon would have been, would have been cost prohibitive. I think that it's not like they had, a, they'd played San Francisco before they played the, uh, the first time they played, it was a stupid booking. I think, um, I had seen Black Flag down at the Mab, and I think they booked the Misfits the same time up at the On Broadway. It was really weird. So, like, nobody went upstairs. I mean, they they played before, but this time, this was a, the large venue. It wasn't really well populated. Certainly not well. You know, there was not well staffed, and uh, and then they, you know, they bust off with the faggot stuff, which was just not not gonna fly. And um, so yeah, I don't know that there was a ban, uh, an official ban. I mean, the promoters that would have booked them after that are Dirk Dirksen, Wes Robinson, Paul Rat, and I'm pretty pretty much sure that that was it. Queenie Taylor, as far as I know, hadn't entered the picture yet, but um, yeah, nobody was going to take a chance after that. Yeah, and there wasn't, and there wasn't, there there they had not developed. You know, like nowadays we're used to it. I call it the Fox News two step. No matter what happens, there'll be a counter opinion within. 36 hours of the news cycle. I could go shoot a bunch of kids right now. And then within 36 hours of the news cycle, somebody would be saying like, Oh yeah, but you know, Eugene was, you know, (laughs) there'd be some kind of, and there was, that didn't start in regards to the misfits for, it became a East coast, West coast thing. And which we got caught up in. Cause I wrote that article, um, you know, Midwest siding with the East Coast. I mean, we played all over and didn't have any problems, but, you know, certain people then tried to, it just in the press, never face to face. 
you know, uh, Tesco V and the Touch and Go guys tried to uh, talk shit about us. It ended up, it, it ended up being in total, it ended up being, being, I, I, it, it, it was a bad end for them. And, and I, I, I felt some sort of obligation. I mean, I didn't pay for the ticket. I didn't, uh, but their last, their farewell tour that they did in San Francisco, a buddy of mine bought a ticket and said, you want to go? And I said, yeah, sure. And I went and it was a great show. It was at Oakland Coliseum. And, um, yeah, and you know, I I don't know. I I I mean, I think it was it was re- regrettable. I mean, unfortunately, Danzig is one of his. I mean, he's a terrible self advocate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's just one. He's just one of those guys who'd be better off. He, it would be much easier to appreciate him as an artist if he didn't talk so much. Um, and it's not his fault. People are running into his you know, shoving microphones in his face, I guess he just says whatever, but it's like, come on, what do you expect? And Bertrand Russell, the guy's been doing this since he's 10, you know, um, don't be asking him about politics, but, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, but so there, so there was a thing it started, it took about, I, that's what I was going to say. It took about six years for there to be a constituency of people who were like, you know, kind of not so much fuck Timmy, but yeah, I like the Misfits. I don't care what you say. And it started in the South Bay, as far as I, with guys who later became friends of mine. Corey O'Brien from the Faction was the first one who was. I don't give a shit. I like yeah. him. And and I started. And so he was. He didn't know Timmy, but you know he was part of our scene. Then that was the first time I started to say, well, let me separate. Let me separate the, you know, the artist from the art here in this instance. And hey, Corey's the uh, owner of the, uh, or he was the owner of the Blank Club, and now the. Uh... The Ritz is that what it's called? I didn't know that. I, good for you. I, I didn't know he and I worked at Apple together at the at the time, and that's when we actually became actually friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we were seen friends before then, but I mean, we worked together at Apple. It was like, hey, we're the only people like us here, so let's yeah, let's go get lunch. <laughs> you know, so that, that was kind of cool. <laughs> so Corey, so he, um, I was writing at the Metro newspaper in San Jose, mm-hmm. and uh, Blink Club had hit like a milestone. Like I can't remember some kind of anniversary like seven years or something mm. and uh i asked if he wanted to do an article he agreed to it and I, he said come over to the blank club and so i get into the blank club this is like in the daytime there's no one else there mm. and he goes i just want you to know that i hate doing interviews mm-hmm. um, i'm like okay he's like all right then and then okay. he like, we talked about the blank club <laughs> cool cool yeah he's got a reason for that but that's for another time <laughs> <laughs> so okay there's this very famous photo of uh, i think it's the uh dead kennedys at uh in staten island mm, yeah, and, yeah and you're you're right in the center the most animated person in that photo mm-hmm. uh can you tell a little bit about that that photo and that show yeah it, it it's it's a fill and flash photo and fill and flash was a boston guy who is the brother of Springer, who sang for uh, SSD, and Nancy Burrill, uh, uh, Al Burrill's wife, Al being the guitar player for SSD, um, she and I got, got into it online, and we established, based on her dating timeline with Al, that that was, that was the same weekend, that was a CB show, 
um, SSD played. The DK, uh, Dead Kennedys did not play the CB show, but they did play in Staten Island, but it was the same weekend. Um, so that, and, and SSD had just gone on stage when that picture was taken and Phil and Flash came and told me that he was still taking it. But in the days before cell phones, I mean, this was like remote that I would see this thing. It's just so he had something he had in his camera, took it back to Boston. But of course, then I started seeing it on posters and, you know, it's, it's at this point, semi iconic, uh, uh, drew, uh, uh, Drew, whose last name does the, the New York hardcore series out of New York, made a film about Drew Stone, made a film about it and used it on the, on the poster. And it appears it's it's just it appears all over the place. And people are like, is that you? I go, the fuck? That, doesn't it look like me? <laughs> it looks like me. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know, of course, I man, I used to be such a huge SSD fan. But um, that that night that the Dead Kennedys played was in Staten Island. And that resolved. It's, that was a riot, an actual actual riot and um it was it was cool because it sort of in my head shifted how shifted certainly how um i mean i i'm old enough and i well i started in 77 right and so i remember punk rock as being you know the product of you know guys and girls from nyu and uh, you know RISD, who were like maybe five or six years older than me, like art students who were tourists, you know, they were experimenting with stuff and not especially physical. I mean, I remember talking to Thurston Moore about getting mugged in the Lower East Side. And and when punk rock started to kind of decline, there were only a few people who made the transit over, right? Like there are people who I remember from going to shows in 77 were very few and far, Jack Rabbit, who I was hanging out with because he was friends with a friend of mine that I went to high school with, David Satz. And then there was Harley. Um, and Harley's aunt was in, played bass for the Stimulators, which was the band that he was in. And Denise, I think her name was, and she was like 25, right? So it seemed like very old to me if I was 16 or 17. And so those cats had kind of disappeared. Then hardcore hit super hard. So you know, the art students, the punk rockers, you know, this is when people were pogoing. They were not especially physical. And they were, you know, I mean, if you look at early photos of the Ramones and you, you understood their use of the word punk, they meant punk, prison style punk. They didn't mean punk sitting in the back room throwing switchblades at the teacher punk. That's not what they meant. So people, they, <laughs> yeah. these guys were getting their asses handed to them on the Lower East Side. You know, talk about gentrification. They weren't having any of that in 77. But this riot was instructive and interesting to me because these it was it was hardcore ownership at this point. Like the, what what kicked it off? There was a woman named Lazar who rest in peace. She's gone now, but she and I were talking out front, and apparently some cousin had tried to hit on her before, which is kind of what I was doing because I always had a thing for Lazar. Um, and <laughs> and apparently she had told him to go fuck off, and um. He came, he, he was, he'd come, he, maybe he saw her talking to me and was like, that would not stand and came over and said something like, ah, you fucking ugly skank, you bitch, whatever. And she very calmly uh, took her belt off. She had, you know, kind of a, I don't know, a drive chain belt of some kind and whipped him across the face with it. I was like, whoa. And she put, she didn't break the conversation. She did it and just kept talking to me. And I was like, okay. And he had run to the pizza parlor next door, came back with a baseball bat and threw it at her. Um, 
like a spear and it stuck in the storefront window that we were standing in front of right next to the Paramount. And then I fucking punched him, knocked him down. She started kicking him and everything went nuts after that. The fucking cuisines ran out of the pizza parlor. But these, the hardcore kids in New York were like, they were like the lost boys, man. These were like, they've been beaten by their father since you read, you read Rogers, uh, Rogers autobiography. These are working class kids who had tough lives and they were not about to go to art student route. So we uh, fucked these guys up. And then Booby, who used to drum for a band anti-warfare, he drove that night. And so he actually, just like some scene from the movie, he got in the car and it was a woody state, a rust colored woody station wagon. And we stood on the roof and on the hood and some people rode in the back to get to the ferry with, you know, a bunch of us running down the street on either side and we got, you know, got out of there after having kicked all these kids at, you know, I mean, they were our age, but they were, you know, they were cuisines, which for people who don't know, it's like an, an Italian version of a cholo. Like if you see, you know, Jersey Shore, that's what we're dealing with. And that was for me really instructive because I had never seen punk rockers like, <laughs> you know, this was this was the dividing line between punk rock and hardcore 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, you were at the. uh you were at the kind of the famous like Bad Brains three nights at CB's, right? Yeah, that too. That was fantastic. All three nights? All three nights. All three. It was like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and the day after Christmas or something like that. I, yeah, I, it was phenomenal. Phenomenal. I mean, which means that it was fundamentally a three-hour set, you know. And I, I as, a, as a guy, a performing artist myself, I was like, how are they going to pull it off? How are they going to do it? I don't Can they do it? Can they do? Yeah, okay, it's different days. And they more, uh, they, it was, it was transformative. So, so you're saying they didn't, they didn't repeat material? Um, there were some of the same songs, but these were three distinctly different shows. Three distinctly different shows. If I remember correctly, the one on Christmas Day, I mean, given their proclivities for Rastafarianism, was much more dub-based, right? So it's you know this is religious music, um, so it was much it was a little bit more restrained. But um, the day before and the day afterward, fire, you know. Yeah. Any any memories from that show that uh, really just stick out to you? Yeah, that the that the that the uh, the opening. Uh, I think they opened with Right Brigade. I mean, I guess it's on the video, which is why I hesitate to say. But whatever it is, with that long Earl's long drum lead up, and then Gary's slide guitar. And when they when it drops and it breaks into the song, I, I don't think I felt before or since then a greater sense of absolute joy and exhilaration. It was really, it, I, I just, I can't even, I can't even. And I, and I know that they, I mean, the stories have accrued about, yeah, you know, the shit that they did in Texas, but even beyond that, I just recorded some stuff with a guy down in Memphis, Tennessee. And he was like, yeah, you know, HR I was in a band with HR. I go, Oh, cool. Tell me about it. He goes, no, not so cool. We were scheduled to go on tour. And, uh, the morning of the tour, we woke up and uh, uh, he was gone. And I was like, "We were gone? What do you mean gone? He's just gone." I go, "Oh well, you know, that's he's a little nutty. He's got his bipolar thing going." And they go, "No, man, he was gone, and he had taken the van." Oof. I go, "The van? <laughs> yeah, with all of our gear in it." I mean, he said, "Like, oh, I should sleep in the van in case somebody steals it." 
And then he stole the van with all of the equipment in it, all the T-shirts, all the merch, all the CDs, all the amps, all the guitars, everything. Never saw him again. Never saw it again. And I was like, all right, man, the dude is clinical. I don't know what to tell you. But I, and again, I have to separate the artist from the art. Those shows were phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, so you're from New York. Um, then you moved to Northern California in like 1980, right? S- September of 1980. Now, did you move specifically to go to Stanford or did that come later? No, I went to go to Stanford. Okay. I mean, I figured I want to go someplace that I might like to visit because um, I never expected to, to have left New York for this long. I surely, I thought, you know, people go to college and they go back home. And I sh- certainly expected to do that. And uh, that's not how things worked out. Do you still feel like you're a New Yorker at heart? I'm a New Yorker at heart for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm for sure. I mean, we've had this discussion with my kids many a time. I said, Dad, you're kind of rude. I go, no, no, I'm not rude. <laughs> you are California kids and you have a New York father. That's the deal. Yeah. A, yeah. I'm, I'm mild. You should be. You should spend a week there. Um, but no, I realized that I, for a long time, maintained the illusion that I was going to go home. And then I... I, I put that to bed about 15 years ago when I realized it was a, con- a con- confluence of a bunch of things. I'd interviewed Chris Rock and we were talking and he, he you know, he, you know, he's kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's more in evidence now, but back then he was, it was what I would have called a right wing se- sentiment. He was like talking about Dinkins who was a the mayor then. And he was like, listen, I mean, I've been, I was mugged twice under Dinkins I've not been mugged at all under Giuliani. Make what you will of that, you know? And I was like, nah, man. And I started to express some sort of begrudging kind of like, like, you know, like I miss, like, you know, like the agnostic front song about missing old New York. Like I miss. And he goes, and he had me on this one. He goes, the teenager in you misses that New York. (laughs) (laughs) The the 37 year old man does not miss that. You don't want to know, man. No. And I figured, ah, he's right. So the New York that I was, you know, that I was thinking I would go back to didn't exist. And I realized that California had changed. Like, I used to get on the subway and ride for 45 minutes to get to my gym and then walk six blocks through the snow in the wintertime to get to my gym. It took me, it's like, if an hour and a half workout, it easily took me an hour and a half to get home through the snow. And it's like, now <laughs> I am four miles from my gym. And when they, the gym was talking about moving, I was like, fuck that, bro. I need a new gym. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I've become a Californian at that. I'm not driving any further than I have to. You know? So you're uh, Whipping Boy. You, you formed that band around 81, I think. Yes. Other, other, with other Stanford students? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. It was, uh, I, I, I paused there because I'm not sure that our first drummer – was a Stanford student. He was one of those weird guys. Like he was, I mean, again, it seemed like aged to us, but he was probably about 24, Dave McLean. And I don't know that anybody ever saw him in class or he went to any classes, <laughs> but he was there, you know, just kind of hanging around. But he is, uh, was our first drummer. So, but yeah, Adam Zimbardo was the first bass player. Phil Zimbardo, you know, the Stanford prison experiment guy's son. And he's from New York too, oh, wow. so we kind of bonded over that. And then, um, and then Steve Steve Ballinger, um, who stayed who stayed who stayed the longest of the original crew. Now, was your first show uh, not 
an intended show. It was like circle jerks were playing and you guys somehow made your way on stage and just did a few show songs. Yeah, that's yeah, that's when we're, cr- we're crazy, man. We're at the show. <laughs> it's at the, How this is at the farm and uh, effigies played and the circle jerks were playing. I don't remember who opened. And I was like, God damn it, we should be playing this show. And Steve and, St- and Steve and I would get into the, have these extreme acts of violence, but that started philosophically, right? Like, I mean, I remember we were walking along one night. And I almost stumbled into a bike rack and I said, who would put this here? Look at the fang shui of this. This is all wrong. Can't you see that 100% of the people are 100% of the going to time? He goes, well, where would you put it? I go, well, if I had my druthers, I would put it over there. And, you know, Steve was incredibly strong. He yanked this thing out of the ground and I, I, I yanked it. I yanked I said, well, I'm not going to be outdone because I lifted weights too. I yanked the other end and we took it and we put it where it should be, you know, and it was the same kind of thing. We're at the farm. like. All our whole band is here. Why don't we play? And he goes, you know what? I'm going to ask the promoter. <laughs> and so, and I'm, I'm kind of blind to the physical, you know, like I said, Steve was like 275. He's a really big guy. I'm kind of, and we just go up to the promoter and say, Hey, we're all here right now. Why don't you let us play a little bit before the circle jerks play? And the guy goes, go ask the circle jerks. Like he doesn't want anything to do with it. Right. So we go to the circle jerks, which is, I mean, Keith is tiny. Right. So Keith was like, uh, you know, he, I guess he thought it was like LA, like the, you know, the subtle threat being, if you don't let us do this, <laughs> we are going to fuck shit up here and it'll be a miserable show. So he was like, fine, we'll do it. And then, uh, but you can't use our equipment. We go, okay, no, it's fine. And so we go to the effigies who were in town from Chicago and what the fuck are they going to say? I mean, they knew us kind of cause we were hanging around the guys at KPFA, Tim, Johanna and so on. And, or maybe we hadn't even started doing that yet. So we were just unknown. And we said, Hey man, can we use your, Keith wants us to play a couple of songs before they go on. Can we use your equipment? He was like, sure. And so they say, yeah, next up from LA, the circle jerks. And we come out and we felt like, what the fuck? And we did three, I mean, back then, you know, three songs of our songs were 45 seconds long. I mean, the whole thing was over in like four minutes but it was a fantastic four minutes because that's when I met Klaus at night and Darren Poligro and so on. So, I mean, who came up to us afterward? I'm like, what the fuck? Who the fuck are you guys? So it was, it was great. I mean, and the, like the misfits, we, man, people were throwing full bottles of beer at our head. They didn't give a shit. They're like, fuck you. <laughs> and I couldn't have been, I couldn't have been happier. I was just <laughs> absolutely gleeful, you know? So, so Okay. Now I'm curious. So we, we've kind of established sort of um, punk and hardcore. What what is your what was your first interaction with ska music? Oh, way way before then. Way in fact, there's a funny story. That one of the guy the guy Booby who I talked about, who was on the Village Voice did a big spread on hardcore. There everybody was entranced with moshing, and he was you know kind of heavy set Soviet Georgian guy who was on the cover. Made great, looked great, made great copy. Um, but he asked me at one point, he was like, Hey, do you like the specials? And I was a huge specials fan, but you know, in those days, you know, you weren't sure about what was going to be doctrinaire or not. And I paused a little bit, not too long. Cause I was about, I didn't give a shit. I was going to come out and say, I love the special. And he said, cause I loved them. And I go, yeah, me too. I love them. And, and that was one of the factors that actually drew me to Stanford because they had played at Tresseter the year before, like not even the year, like a few months before I'd gotten there and tore the place up. Everybody at Stanford was still kind of like pissed when I got there about it. Um, I saw madness when they came through. 
uh, at the same place where I think I saw the dead Kennedys at California Hall. So it's a Bill Graham show. Um, but it was, um, in fact, you got to remember. So 77, um, the Sex Pistols played their last show in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Sid Vicious goes back to New York, starts making headlines. My stepfather at the time worked for the New York Post. This is before Murdoch bought it. And was, you know, so we always had newspapers out. So was bringing home Eddie and the Hot Rods records because nobody wanted to review review it. But he heard this punk rock thing. He figured I might like it. I did like it. Started to read about the Ramones, Sid Vicious, then Stabs, Nancy Spungen. So this was a big news story. And I was like, I want in. I want in. And I was already on the subway at that point. So it was easy. You know, if, if it had happened when I was 10, I wouldn't have had such ready access to it. But it was easy for me to get on the subway and get to Max's Kansas City or, or so on. So I had started to pay attention to stuff that was alternative and... Uh, um, and of course, at this point, I'm buying Soho Weekly News. And one of the first photographs I saw uh, was a photograph of um, Linton from the specials with mm-hmm. a gun. Uh, and I want to say uh, holding holding the, the pistol in uh, uh, up Terry's nose, but I don't think it was Terry. I think it was Jerry Dammer's. And, you know, is New York has had the guns weren't easy to get in New York. I, I had I had a shotgun, but guns weren't easy to get in New York, you know, pistols. And, you know, this is right around the time of the Bristol riot. So it just had it had I thought the specials had an edge to them that, I, that you know, was catnip for somebody like me. I mean, later I met some British guys who were like, yeah, we hated them. They were college guys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we just we just thought it was just like these are guys that we would have crossed the street to avoid. We did not interested at all. But to an American ear and audience, this was uh, this was something. And I mean, I remember when. When, Rasta, when Rastafarianism became a thing, I was living in Crown Heights, and the only people living in Crown Heights then were like West Indians, primarily Haitians, and uh, Hasidic Jews. And I remember the guys with the Tams and the dreadlocks, you know, and we used to make fun of their pants because they were, we call them high waters. They were high water pants, and they all had this special walk. And we were just like mocking these Rastafarian guys. We had, didn't know didn't know what, what, what was going on, but then you would, you know, those were the days where the record stores would put the speakers on the sidewalk. So you started to hear it. And then by the time I'd gotten to be about 13, uh, they had, that's when Chris Blackwell, and he, I know this because I interviewed him. He told me when they decided to reposition Bob Marley as a rock guy. And, um, and so once he was in the rock milieu, and he had tried that before and it hadn't worked out, but it, he, they finally packaged it right and it worked. Um, and and I think, I suspect that it was a confluence of, you know, Rastafarianism and weed that made people like in the rock community embrace them. So at that point, so, you know, you start to pay attention to Bob Marley, Rocksteady, ultimately Scott. And, and so when the specials come along, I was primed. And uh, in fact, one of the last things I did before New York, uh, before I left New York, was go to a midnight showing of Clash's Rude Boy. And I was all Scott out. I had my two tone suit on and my loafers and that was <laughs> in a massive street fight, which had a, a broken bottle jammed into my ear, torn all the cartilage in my left ear, which is wow. sewn back imperfectly and is 
caused me problems to this very day, which is why I started wearing duct tape uh, to hold my earplugs in because my left ear won't support an earplug normally, um, which I write about, which I write about in the memoir. What caused the fight? Ah, man, it was just a, it's a, it's a long drawn out thing, but there were, <laughs> you know, there's just a, a fucking street fight that I got. I, I probably should have, the New Yorker me should just kept on walking, but I think my goal was to render aid, uh, which was foolish and misguided, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and what was good though, was that, uh, I'd gone home, uh, I'd gone home still, you know, you get a head wound, it bleeds a lot. And I'd gone home to get my shotgun to drive back and scare the guys. That was the plan. And uh, my mother, who's a notoriously light sleeper, got up and said, hey, how you doing? I go, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. As I'm, you know, putting my shotgun together, <laughs> jamming the shells in my pocket. And she goes, can I come say goodnight to me? And I was like, ah, and so I figured it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be easier if I went to, to her because I knew her room would be dark. And uh, But she was fast and came out and saw the blood and made my stepfather take me to the hospital. So probably a good, good wise thing that I didn't go back with my shotgun and shoot at yeah. these guys. So, um, but yeah, but I, but I, 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 that's, I was in the, the specials where my gateway drug, I, I didn't like, I didn't, I wasn't so into um, Marley. Um, but you know, I was also going to the Caribbean with my grandmother and so knew a lot about Calypso. So the rhythms were familiar to me. Um, but it was, you know, how they had filtered down to the Brits and came back with the specials, you know, that impressed me. And then I saw mad, not only did I see madness play in probably 1980 in San Francisco, but then Oxbow ended up playing a festival in Bristol with madness which was really immense, a big festival. And I was like, I'm standing there, you know, backstage. And I'm like, ah, it's cool, man. It's cool. They got a madness cover band. <laughs> <laughs> and some the, one of the, one of the production assistants goes, what are you talking about? These guys, they're pretty, they're fucking, they're killing it. He goes, it's madness. And I, I just hadn't, you know, this was like, 2010 right (laughs) so the first time i saw madness was 1980 2010 was 30 years later i had not adjusted for the fact that humans age so (laughs) so it was madness but i just hadn't adjust i just thought it was some old dudes playing cover tunes you know it's funny when uh when you moved to uh, california in the early 80s and uh, you were more in part of the hardcore scene what was there any ska that you were seeing back seeing at that time like any uh, any local stuff any any uh, any bands from the US coming through um there were a few right there were a few that caught caught my ear and because they seemed to um they they seemed to really not give a shit what people thought about them and they really seemed to be pursuing. And I, I know this probably won't be a popular pick, but I remember sublime and I in, enjoyed and sort of to a certain degree, what Rancid did with the ska rhythms. There was a whole nother category of ska that kind of 
mixed and matched with uh, funk at the time. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking 86 and 87. And uh, and I knew uh, Dickie Betts from Mighty Mighty Boston's. In fact, that photograph that Phil Phil and Flash took of us at the at the SSD show, he's in that photo with me. And that's how not only is he in that photo, but Michael Jira in a weird turn is also in that photo. Also in that photo is Pete Guy, whose father was a singer for the Coasters. So this is like these <laughs> weird little fun facts. Um, so I knew the Mighty Mighty Boston's, and but I wasn't so much. I mean, I knew him from the hardcore scene. I, it seemed to me to be a slavish imitation. Um, it's just like like I like you know I like Madness. I'm gonna do an American version of Madness. So I, I thought it was, I thought it 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 what didn't seem especially artistically valid to me. But this is me, you know, being a man of my twenties, being kind of a prick. So I, 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 I didn't I didn't take them seriously. And also, what was happening in my life when this was happening in the Bay Area was a lot of things that gave birth to Oxbow. Which, if you've heard me read interviews with me before, you know, Oxbow's first record, Fuckfest, was intended to be kind of like a suicide note right so i was going Mm -hmm. through some weird times and ska at at that time in 87 say was had become sort of party music it was fundamentally happy music so i didn't have any patience for it Uh, i (laughs) I mean there was an edge to the specials you know i mean if you uh, you listen to ghost town there was an edge to the specials but you know by by 87 man i was planning my suicide (laughs) no i was not not so happy so yeah 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 party music's not going to hit your ear right when you're thinking about that yeah you know it's like i'm glad you guys are enjoying yourselves but i'm not (laughs) you know so um being in the bay area did you ever come across skank and pickle yep yep and um they were introduced to me by jeff bruce um who was in fungus i think was the name of his band at the time um but um yeah I hated the name. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I, I see it's, it's just unfortunate because I've read Aaron's book. So I know, I know that like, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't want to be like the fucking downer guy, man. Cause you're, you, the enthusiasm with which you attacked it in the book was actually infectious, but I just, it was just <laughs> such a difficult time for me to try to be happy that I, it's, oh, yeah, sure. yeah. It was just a tough time. So, so, but back in New York, um, you were friends with, uh, the band, uh, urban blight. Yeah. I wasn't friends with them, man. We went to high school together and Jerry, uh, Faison, uh, one of the trumpet players was, um, was, I was on the swim team with him. And then the main guy, uh, Jamie cars was, uh, his, his, Odette, his, his girlfriend, Odette Nepal. Uh, I was working double overtime to seduce and failed miserably. Not only did I fail miserably back then, but I failed miserably the, over the years at high school reunions. <laughs> That's a long, whatever at JB cars had going on. It was enough to keep me out of there for years. So, <laughs> so, but those guys were great. I loved urban blight. So they, they started in the seventies as kind of a, a dance party band, but I don't know if this was after you left, but, once Two Tone came about, they started incorporating ska in their songs too. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm not surprised. Um, no, Jamie had started them in high school, man. So um, there were I knew three guys in bands in high school. One was um, 
has just died. He was in Necron 99, James C2, um, and it was the first Asian kind of um, punk rock band. Um, and, you know, we were in homeroom together, and I remember him bringing the bass in. Um, he was in the band, and there was uh, my friend uh, Pishko, who was in a polka band, which uh, seems funny at the time, but, you know, they had records, did tours, had a van, the whole bit. He was always rushing off to rehearsal, so it was my first glimpse into kind of, I mean, I was a theater kid, you know. By the time I got into high school, I even stopped doing that. I was going on auditions for, you know, modeling shit and TV and movies and so on. Uh, unsuccessfully, uh, my biggest audition <laughs> was uh, I auditioned for Manhattan, uh, the Woody Allen movie, and of course, oh, yeah? all the black people you see in Woody Allen movies, you, you can imagine that that was not successful. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, so, um, but uh, I I knew Jamie Cars and I knew Faison from Swim Team. I think they were a couple years older than me, and there were a couple of guys who I later saw at hardcore shows who had signed on as roadies for Urban Blight, and they lasted a long time, way longer than I ever expected that they would. Um, but they were always nice to me, nothing bad to say. And I think that they were, um, I, I wish that they, I, I ended up, I, I kind of, one of those bands, I wish that they, I, I wish that they had gotten their due. I, I always remember feeling quite that they didn't quite get their due and they deserved it, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, you mentioned the beginning of the interview, your book, Fight. Everything you wanted to know about ass kicking. Every, everything you ever wanted to know about asking, but afraid you get your ass kicked for asking. Yes. <laughs> I, I got to say it fast, otherwise I start to stumble over stuff. Too. <laughs> let, okay, so I, let, let's talk about some more fighting stories. You, you already mentioned the Rude Boy one. Um, there's the uh, Oxbow documentary where you guys are in Bradford, England, and uh, there's a guy named oh, yeah. Chris. Yeah. Want to tell that story? Fuck that guy. <laughs> Still, you know, it's like uh, it was. It had sticks. Was one of the drummers for Cla- the Clash was there. In fact, if you watch a documentary, you hear this guy pleading. He's saying, "You know, could you please get off the stage? Give another band a chance." And that was uh, 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 sticks from Crass, which is funny because I did a panel at Supersonic with Penny Rimbaud a few years after that. So it was kind of an amusing uh, thing, but it was a, it was a anarchist squat, you know? So already I was in a bad mood. And uh, of course, you know, I have it in the, this is back when I was eating meat. Now I'm a pescatarian, but I had it in, you know, all caps that I, I needed to have meat. That was part of my diet there. And of course you're like, well, we don't do that here, man. I go, oh, really? What? Well, we have lentils. You fuck you and your lentils. Go out to the store and get me a hot dog. And they were like, no, we're not. So already I'm cranky. And so we start playing. And they were trying to, you know, Brits are trying to do this thing. They do either they they want to push you to see if you're like really real. Like, man, there's no there's no classism here, which are, which is comical coming from the UK, right? Um, it's like, <laughs> you're on stage and I'm in the audience, but we're really one. No, man, I'm six thousand miles from home and loaded twenty five hundred pounds of gear into the club tonight. We are not the same, you know. <laughs> so um, I'm on stage and we're playing and. Um, and a guy comes up to me and he has drawn my tattoos, the tattoos I have on my body, on his body. And, (laughs) and I, I, I appreciate his sense of humor because I'm a guy with a sense of humor. 
<laughs> Above all else, I've got a sense of humor. And so I met his sense of humor and raised it with my sense of humor, which was to arm drag him into what we call a rear naked choke. And it's great <laughs> if you look at the photo series. At first, he's playing along with it. And then he realizes he can't breathe. And then there's just this series, the photographs. It's, it's from the movie where he's just getting lower and lower and lower until I drop him on the floor. And at that point, all hell breaks loose, right? So it was kind of like the misfits at the elite club, but I just put him to sleep. I mean, that's the great thing about grappling. It's just about control. So he's on the floor and, you know, now they're throwing fucking shit at us. And I was more concerned about the, uh, about the van. Like, cause you know, if they'd gone out and stabbed four of the tires, that would have really fucked with our lives. Right. So, yeah. um, I could deal with the bottles being thrown at me. And, uh, then afterward we left the stage and, uh, we finished the set as we should have. And, uh, this table of three women said, you need to sit down here. You need to explain to, and so we got into this big philosophical discussion about, we feel you're under an obligation to, you know, give, have a trigger warning with your tickets. And I go, why would we do that? There are no trigger warnings in life. You turn the corner left or right, bad things happen to people all the time, you know, and it's four of us on stage. You know, there's a hundred of you guys here, you know, so you got to understand, uh, you know, my sense of, of, of peril when I'm approached by this large man who, uh, you know, I didn't know what he was going to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so her boyfriend is a sound guy at that point. He's like, you know, yanks her away from the table because it's clear after about 20 minutes of conversation that we're not talking because we don't like each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he yanks her out and my drummer hears them screaming on the stairs. They are the worst band in the world. And then this guy, Paulie, uh, from the band Pale Horse, who played with us at night, he sees me on the stairs as I'm loading gear out because I'm trying to get to the stairs as quickly as possible to get to the van so that they don't stab out the tires. And he says, oh, you're in that band that just played, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. Like, I thought he was going to say, oh, great show. He's like, I didn't fancy it at all. <laughs> and the only reason I know it was Paulie is because we've since become friends, you know. And he was like, I just wasn't ready for it that night, man. I just wasn't. And then, of course, we played that was Bradford. And the next night we played Leeds and the lead show word had, had, had the word had, uh, had preceded us. So the lead show was packed, but then the band that played support thought that they would be funny and they played way too fucking long. And there's a curfew and the club owner says, Hey man, you guys got to stop at 10. You got like 12 minutes. And you know, Oxbow was like, well, what should we do? And I was like, well, do what we do. We, take what we get you know then we played it was super hot it was really fucking hot it was a death trap you know single staircase upstairs at this pub and we played because it's only 12 minutes we could just play scorching from beginning to end and it was great people really dug it and but of course on the way to the stage the band that had played extra long who had been in Bradford, who were trying to fuck us over, the drummers changing over were moving really slowly. And Greg Davis, you know, Oxbow's drummer, grabbed the guy's crown and threw it down the stairs. It's like, man, it's in the way. You got to move. We got it. We got 12 minutes. So uh, they were angry. But at the, after the conclusion of the 12 minutes, I think they gave us like four more minutes to go. And we played the, for the whole, you know, that 16 minutes. Fuck it. We did it. We got paid, went down, people bought us drinks. They were totally happy. It was, it worked out well. 
nobody had to be stabbed that night. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, you have a an interesting relationship with fighting with your with your all everything you've told about uh, with punk rock and, and these interactions. You wrote a book about it. You do like jujitsu and, and other things like seven days a week. <laughs> what do you, what do you feel about fighting? Do you feel like fighting is? You must have philosophies, I guess, about fighting and its place in society. Yeah, I mean, when Farai Chidea interviewed me on NPR, she actually spent the entire fourteen minutes trying to put some light between me and fighting. You know, and they try to honey dick you with stuff like, "Well, you seem like a pretty bright guy," and it's like, <laughs> "Look, I'm not, I'm not out starting fights with people." You know, I mean, generally, I'm, I'm fired up by the sense of injustice, and you got to realize, like, I've got four sisters, right? And I, not only that, I have four daughters, and I have aunts and female cousins. The men that were in my family were married into my family. They, we have actually only managed to give birth like every fifty years. Like, there's me. Like, and the next birth in the family is my grandson, right? I am 55 years older than my grandson. There are no other men. People have had plenty of kids. I, I have, a, I have, a, uh, I have a, a nephew, and he's 17. So that, that breaks the pattern. But he's like the only one, right? So typically, I, I see the guys who are doing stuff to me that motivate me to fight are guys who I know are doing shitty things to women. Like routinely, you know, just like the band in in, in uh, Osaka, um, who I warned the promoter about, the band that had played support for us were women, and these guys were just on jumped on the stage, put their backs to the band, and start talking to each other in the audience just to be fuck. You know, and these are Japanese women, so they were just like, okay. Okay, you know, they just put up with it. And I'm looking at the promoter and I'm looking at these guys. And that's when I say, if you don't fucking control this thing now, you're going to have problems when we play. And whether it was a language thing, I told the, the our, our Japanese translator to very clearly explain this to him and nothing. So we start playing and they were outside drinking. You know, Osaka is different from Tokyo, you know, in tone in terms of tone and timbre. And uh, the guys ran around the corner and one guy was like jerking his dick at me. And I put the mic down on stage and I jumped into the audience and I grabbed him with an old style catch wrestling move that's called the flying mare. And uh, when he hit the floor, he was unconscious. So bad. I mean, it was like the Misfits thing where Dan Oxwell's bass player was like, I think we should probably stop the show and leave now because this guy looks dead. Um, and, uh, he regained consciousness by the show's end, but nobody fucked with us after that. And I look at it like you're either a friend of art or you're an enemy of art. And if you're an enemy of art, look, there are lots of ways you can, um, that you can, uh, uh, express yourself. You can leave. We'll be glad to give you a refund. You can you know, walk right the fuck out the door. You can scream, you suck and leave. Uh, but to have a systematic campaign of disrespect, well, disrespect begets disrespect. And that guy had got what was coming to him. And then indeed, he was with about 14 other guys and they got me after the show. And through the translator, they were like, you are very strong. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, can we uh, wrestle with you? I go, okay, yeah, but you know, I don't do that shit for free. And so I charged them to arm wrestle them. <laughs> and I, I beat about seven guys in a row and guy number eight actually legitimately beat me. I, I know it's nice to spin the story like that. I hustled these guys like a pool hall hustler, 
but he just the physics of his arm. He was a, a, a long, thin guy, and he actually legitimately fucking beat me, right? Which then guaranteed one, it meant that those guys wanted to re up. So I arm wrestled all 14 of the guys, and the guys who I'd beaten, the seven guys, want to come back. So I did 21 arm wrestling matches. And they all paid for them. And so that I made a huge amount of money that night. In the end, arm wrestling these guys. But, of course, the next day I couldn't use my arm because it was so blasted out. Uh, um, but, but, you know, I mean, what undergirded that was like, you know, um, you just don't – why? This being an artist is like if you don't want to be here, don't be here, man. But don't – don't – don't um, – you know, I'm you're fucking with my hustle. You know, don't don't do it. I don't do it to you. You know, like Albini said, I don't come down to your job and slap the dick out of your mouth. Don't you know? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's inadvisable, right? So, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think maybe it's that like most people, most people aren't willing to uh, stand up to that. Um. Yeah, because we're hoping that things don't go south. But you know, you got to realize. Some comedian once was talking about. He was, he was specifically talking about rednecks and he was like saying guys who don't like you and they're happy to see you. And that's kind of one of my ethos. Like I don't like you and I'm happy to see you because this is, you know, I, I welcome teachable moments, you know, but I mean, keep in mind, you, uh, you know, the, in the last 10 years, the only fights I've gotten into have been in venues. They've not been actual street fights. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody in the street is absolutely mad enough to, to start trouble with. Plus I'm never, I don't really hang with other people. So it's like, you know, the, the order, like I lay out in the fight book is if, if you're dressed well and you're in a couple and you're in a hurry, you're prime. Because they know you're not going to spend the time. You dress nicely. You're with a woman. Maybe you're in a hurry. You're not going to take the time. If you, if you, as a single man, if you're strolling along and you don't look like you have much money, people are not going to fuck with you. It's just not going to happen. But you know, I was with I was with my wife in the mission, and we we're going to a show. So we were in a hurry. Like I was performing in a show with the Red Room Orchestra, and. Uh, <laughs> We're in a hurry, and they these guys out there, you know, some, uh, you know, like the black Hebrews, some, you know, or some kind of African nationalist sect. Two black guys and a Latino guy, and uh, yeah, they say, brother, can we have some? No, nah, you know, I'm I'm in a hurry, and the Latino guy <laughs> decides to offer an editorial opinion, and he says. You try sticking to your own, bro. <laughs> and I got to, at this point now, just jujitsu. You know, you talk about martial arts relaxing you. Well, it absolutely does not relax me. <laughs> I got up fucking, <laughs> I flipped out, right? I flipped out. I said, what did you say? And the guys, I didn't say anything. I go, no, 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 no. Now you don't get that now. What did you say? <laughs> you know? And then the, the black cats were like, hey, bro, you know, I said, I said, you two should know that I'm not fucking talking to you. And they just cut them loose. At that point, they were just like, you're on your own, dude. <laughs> and I said, say, you know, say one more fucking word to me. Your mother should have told you about talking to strangers. And now you're going to learn a lesson. Say one more word. And of course, that's the best thing ever because the guy, the easiest thing for him to do is to keep his mouth closed. But of course, that's also the hardest thing to do. And so it was, I just stood there, I just stood there and watched him struggle with this. And then at the end, I gave him that extra kick in the ass, which is like, yeah, I thought so. And we kept on walking. 
but I was so steamed. I was like, she had to do everything once we got back to the club to keep me because it was like two hours until showtime. I was like, hey, um, I left something in the car. She's like, nah, <laughs> nah, 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 you're not going, no. Just, it's, She's all right. Three yeah, days. it's like pointless. This is absolutely pointless. How come you can't see that? I go, you know, this guy, he needs to, uh, he said, everything he needs that you could give him, you gave him. So just leave him be, just let, uh, Zach, all right. But otherwise, usually this, the scuffles are in venues because the people doing, like the guy in Belgium who was known for giving female artists a hard time, right? Like he fucked with Lydia, he fought, you know, he, and so he came to a show I did with Jamie Stewart from Juju, very quiet music, you know, synthesizer, guitar, and my voice, right? And uh, Akasha, my wife, did one song. And he, I could see this guy. He runs to the stage and he's screaming at her the whole set. Right? I, I, don't, I don't put it together, right? I just, uh, I don't know. So she gets off and he's still screaming. And I just know that I'm singing and the guy's screaming. I said, hey, it's about time for you to shut your fucking mouth. Right? And the guy goes, well, I have an opinion. I step, I step off the stage and I said, your opinion is welcome anytime outside of time when I'm doing what I'm getting paid to do. So how about you keep your mouth fucking shut or leave? And the guy's like, well, or what? I said, is it your desire that I strike you? I, I, I got weirdly formal. That's why I remembered it. I said to him, is it, is it your desire that I strike you? And the guy's like, do what you got to do. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen attacks by like, like bears. You know, they do this thing that's always pretty interesting. They acknowledge that you're there. They turn back to eating, which relaxes you. And then they attack. <laughs> and that's kind of what I did. The guy says, you do what you got to do. And I kind of go, huh? And I look off the stage right because I was actually thinking about going back on stage. It, I wasn't like mimicking a grizzly bear, but I was actually thinking about going back on stage. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck this. And turned and knocked him right. Like Charlie Brown, the guy was airborne and his, all of his shit was his hat and his stuff was all, all spread out all over. And, uh, and I was walking toward him now with like blood in my eyes. Cause I was really angry. And, uh, he, 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 he diffused all of it by, as he was like, you know, dizzy on the floor, trying to keep his hold on consciousness. He said two words to me, which I found it completely amusing. He said, eh, no violence. <laughs> I, was like, I go, so it's okay when you're abusing women performers, but now suddenly it's not okay. What a funny turn of events, you know? <laughs> And so I get back on stage and I start to play. And then some other guy is taking photos of me. And I say, put your cameras away. It's written down at the front. No photos outside of the first three songs. Put your camera away. And the guy was like, you know, ignoring me. And uh, I think I said it in French. I have a basic kind of functioning French. Then he kept shooting, right? I guess he was offended that I'd struck the guy and then figured, okay, we're going to document it. So I go over and kick his phone into the night. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then he starts taking his bag off. And then finally the bouncers appear and they say to him, what are you doing? Cause he's, he's now taking his coat off. Right. 
And he goes, he wants to fight me. I will fight him. And the bouncers look at him like, hey, <laughs> you got to go. And they finally put him out. I mean, just to save him. This was, you know, this was no way. This this guy didn't have a chance. And that wasn't the point behind what I was doing. I just wanted to do the show. So, um, and then afterward, everybody in the audience, they, you know, we're trying to unload. Well, Jamie's unloading. I have no gear, so I'm standing there. And the audience was divided. And they were like, they came up and said, what are you bringing that American bullshit here? Why, why couldn't you just, I go, what would you suggest? If it was a house party at your house, I say to a woman there, what would you have done? Well, I would have had a conversation with him. I go, did you pay to see me converse with a guy who systematically abuses female performers? Is that what you paid for? Cause I don't remember that on the ticket. And then it, interestingly enough, the guy who told me that he was systematically abusing female performers was a guy in a band and he goes that guy is known for this he goes from show to show doing this in fact he did it with lydia so i go to lydia i go hey you remember this guy and she was like oh yeah i remember that asshole i just had them turn me up in the turn my monitor my my mix up fuck it you know i got a microphone he's not gonna oh and i go what an adult way of dealing with things (laughs) 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 you know so um, but yeah, jujitsu, it's, it's, it's calming. You know, I just had some surgery on my leg and, uh, was out for 10 days and it was a very tough 10 days to go. If I'm seven days a week to be out 10 days and not touring, I can do it when I'm touring because I have a lot of distractions, but it's now part of my cycle. I like, I psychologically need it. Like some people need antidepressants, whatever mm-hmm. I need to be doing it. So, and get, and keep in mind, it's not a peaceful, that's not like, I'm I'm worse there than I am anywhere else, man. And I'll tell guys before we start fighting, I go, you know what the number one tool of my arsenal is? And the guys are like, what? I go, mockery. <laughs> and the guy starts kind of laughing. And I go, oh, man, I hear a lot of good things about your jujitsu. He goes, really? I go, no. <laughs> and then just, you know, they just proceed to clown them really horribly because I'm deathly afraid that, these it's this is not macho bravado i'm definitely afraid that because i'm older that the guys are just going to go easy on me so i want to make sure that they want to murder me <laughs> and i tell you every they try every day it's tough like I've, i'm beaten up now i'm just trying to stretch my back as a result of something that happened at six o'clock this morning you know <laughs> <laughs> so okay let's go back to the hardcore uh you you had a zine in the eighties, early eighties called Birth of Tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so the very first band you interviewed was Black Flag, right? Yes. Talk about that a little bit. You you were taken with the band pretty quick, right? Yeah. I'd seen them in the seventies in uh in New York. Uh Soho Weekly News had tipped me off to them. And there was this flirtation at the time, if you would fairly nationalist, you know, sympathies, right? Like your Sid Vicious had the swastika t-shirt and, and, uh, and, you know, one of the shows I was at, one of the guys was like, Hey, push, push in the bush, which was a big disco hit at the time. And later when I went back with Whipping Boy, I, I, and I, the moment was right. I, I, uh, I, I sprung it on, this guy's name was, uh, uh, Ira, I sprung it on Ira. I was like, "Hey, man!" And he was like, "Eugene, sorry, man. You you don't realize what kind of shit that we used to get on the street then." So you know, when we saw like a normal person in our clubs, you know, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't rock and punk rock finery then. I think I was just, I was, I was dressed like Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. That was my fashion te- template then, actually. So I mean, in actual fact, yeah, that was exactly what I was doing. So. um and uh 
um, so, uh, um, um, so yeah, the, he, it, it, there was this weird kind of racial dynamic of, uh, you know, Patty Smith was rock and roll nigger and, you know, you were never quite, quite sure. And the article in the Soho Weekly News, Dukowski had a hat on that said redneck and they had just put out, uh, jealous again with the song white minority and rather than be they were being cute about it but they weren't being cute about it they were not identifying it as irony uh necessarily you know they were like playing with the media and so it was i had a friend his name is adam adam smyer who's written a great book called knucklehead um and he's a, a lawyer here in the bay area now and as he's um he's played with us before he if you watch oxbow's video a cold and well-lit place. He's the guy who kind of plays the Duke in the video. And it turned, at one point, he, uh, we became Facebook friends and there's a picture of him there. And I go, what the fuck are you doing in my homeroom? And he was like, oh, you went to Stuyvesant? We went to the same high school. We're like a year or two years apart. He's like a year or two years younger than me. And he was saying, and we're into the same music. And I go, how come I didn't see you at the clubs? He goes, man, I was terrified to go. I don't want to go. And he's a lifelong martial artist as well. Was taking karate, but he, you know, he and his mother, he thought that there was a present danger. But I've always, you know, I remember going when the the, um, the Berlin Wall fell, and I was over there, and so I stayed in some hotel. And uh, Apple had sent me for some business. And the guy said, hey, whatever you do, you'll be fine. But if you go for a walk, don't walk down there. That's East Germany. You'll probably get mugged by skinheads. And I was like, ah, okay. And as soon as, as soon as the guy left me, I fucking, of course, left the hotel and walked straight down there because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see. And so that's why I went to see Black Flag. And Des was singing, <laughs> Des was singing then. And, of course, it was, you know. Well, nothing's going to happen to me. I mean, it was interesting having Harley write the the preface for my uh, for my memoir because um, I remember him from back then as well. And he he said something. He said, "Well, what was unusual about Eugene is that he was visibly fit, <laughs> <laughs> right?" Which I, I had never thought about, right? Because I was I was a teenage. I mean, I was in teenage bodybuilding competitions, and so. I just, I felt invisible. So, and not in a bad way. It was just like, you know, nobody talked to me. Nobody bothered me. I didn't, I didn't really seek out, you know, for, I wasn't there for friends. I was just there for the music. So the fact that he would have noted this, I always thought was interesting. And that probably was a key as to why I was left alone. Uh, but the Black Flag show was great. I, I, I loved Dez's voice. I was not impressed with him as a stage performer, not as much as I was with Rollins, but that was the first time I saw them. Now, Chuck, you you like Chuck the best as in terms of as a person, right? Yeah, he was my fa- like like the he was my favorite Beatle. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it about him that you liked? Um, he just seemed to have a great sense of humor, right? I mean, you, you could think what you want about the guys in Black Flag, but you don't think sense of humor when you think of Greg Ginn, or you know, and even Henry Henry has a has a generalized sense of humor, but. Henry's sense of humor is not very self-reflexive. Like he, he's not, he can laugh about himself as long as he's in control of the narrative, but he, he takes offense very easily. Um, and 
I didn't find, I found that, that Chuck was kind of a more expansive thinker and, uh, I mean, being older helped and, uh, um, and he's, I, I enjoyed talking to him a lot more. So, um, and then Des, of course, uh, was amusing to me. Um, and then we played a whipping boy later, played a bunch of shows with DC three. So I got to spend more time with him and he's a sweetheart, but yeah, Chuck was always my favorite. Now you've been pretty kind to about Greg Ginn in interviews. I think maybe more than a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, why why do you suppose that is? Um, yeah, you, I guess you're referencing Jim Rulin's uh, book. Um, you know, uh, corporate rock still sucks: the rise and fall of SST Records. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I've said this time and time again about characters like John Wayne Gacy and Charles Manson. These people were all nice to me, you know. Okay, Gacy was in jail. <laughs> I wasn't at his fucking house, right? But he was he, he was in, in prison on death row when he was being nice to me. And Manson, same thing, was in prison. But you know, a friend of mine who was under Secretary of Defense under George H. W. Bush said, "Eugene is like a dog. You know, if you're nice to him, he's yours forever." You know, and that's largely. You know, that's kind of largely true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the flip side of that is if you're, if you're shitty to me, I remember that shit for a long time too. So, so Greg, Greg was nice to you. Greg was nice to me. And <laughs> I, 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 I like, I liked him. I actually liked him. He, he's a weird cat, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you have two types of people. People who act like they cr- they're crazy and people who are really crazy. And I think these guys are just, you know, they're just strange fucking cats man he's like you know people get hung up on the money thing let's just we'll just take the money thing out of it let's just get rid of the money thing you know and i mean some of the latter day music they just put out you 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 can't tell me that this was not marvel worthy the tweaker bees i don't know if you've ever heard the tweaker it's terrible it's ab- objectively <laughs> fucking terrible but they went they rehearsed this music they went in the studio and recorded this music <laughs> they produced and published this music and they toured on that music i mean this is madness but he did it you know um so and he paid us so we never had any you know i mean there are people who like Gary Held from Revolver. I'm a little cranky about him still, you know, because when the deal fell apart for the first Oxbow record, uh, Fuckfest, Pathological was still selling through through him. I said, man, you got to stop selling this. This guy's not doing accounting for us, which means it's like somebody broke into my house and stole my shit and he's selling it and you're helping him. And he's like, well, you know, I'm going to, I said, I'm going to burn your fucking place to the ground. Stop selling. He's, well, you're being unreasonable. I was like, ah, unreasonable. I don't, you're not countering this. You're not saying, well, we're doing this because I'm not getting anything other except you want to make a profit. I understand that, but stop selling this stuff. So Gary Held, I'm a little cranky, but I've, I've kind of, you know, I, this was now, we're talking 1980, 1990, 92. I got I to let this shit, some of this shit go. But, but Greg Ginn, the check, the check cleared, yeah, you know. Hey, you were one of the people he paid. Yeah, and I don't say that. I don't say I. 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 You know, people have said before, oh, because he was afraid you were going to kick his ass. You got to understand, Greg. I don't think he's thinking about things that way. I, I. My. In my imagination, he did it because he liked me. I mean, that's just me thinking that. You know, mm-hmm. but who knows? So. So later. So years later, you you have a band with Chuck. I want to hear about that. 
blackface. Blackface. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I do. I did. I did. You know, I've gone through a, d- a couple of different permutations with uh, with spoken word, and one of them was like, uh, you know, I, now I just talk. I don't, I don't do any. Of t- but then I was like doing. I was acting out segments from the different books, and I would have people do music behind me because I just I just like it, you know. And so I said, Chuck, uh, and, you know, he was buying ads in The Birth of Tragedy, so it was convenient. So, Chuck, hey, um, well, I'm going to be in L.A., uh, uh, in Koreatown, doing a show. Could you? He's like, yeah. So, you know, Chuck Tukowski and Eugene Robinson, and we had so much fun. We should say, we should do something else. And then he, he, he gave me the spiel. He goes, I've, I've often thought about doing a band um, where I play all the Black Flag songs that I've written. I go, that's fucking great. I know these ones. I love them, man. Your songs are my favorite songs. And I go, what would you call it? He goes, well, I don't know. Why don't we call it Blackface? I go, that's a fucking great name. That's a really great name. <laughs> and we're about the only people that could pull it off, you know, and it means a lot of things. It could, it doesn't. And, um, and so we did. He came up and we were rehearsing up here, taking band photos, got, got a deal with Hydrahead to put the stuff out. And then we would drive down there and rehearse. And um, and then uh, he started getting strange. And then, I, you know, I, did, I didn't really see it coming. Uh, I just didn't. I just didn't. I didn't, I didn't see it coming. And the first thing was, so, yeah, I talked to Ian Mackay. <laughs> oh, yeah. How's Ian doing? Yeah, he thinks the name is fucked up. I go, oh, you mean Mr. Guilty of Being White thinks the name is fucked up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's like, yeah. I go, well, what does he suggest the name we name it? He goes, well, like, what about Black Velvet? I go, man, that's a completely different vibe. What are you fucking talking about? (laughs) Yeah, and then, you know, then he's like, well, do you think Laura could sing a few songs with us? I go, your wife? How does that make any sense? You know? I mean, you know, you have a band with her already. That's that. That's not this. And he's like, uh, he goes, well, we're not getting enough money on tour. I go, well, we got a gig at the Off Festival in Poland playing support for Iggy Pop, and they want to pay us $19,000. And he's like, well, we're not ready. And I go, let's we'll fucking drive down. We'll stay here for a week, two weeks to get ready, man. And then he just said, it's, I, I can't do it. I can't. It's, it's not it's not it's not happening for me. And he I, he tried to explain. And my attitude about being dumped is, has been consistently the same since since I started getting dumped. <laughs> and it was like, I don't need an explanation. You gave me all I need to know when you said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't give a shit about the whys or the wherefores. So, all right. All right. We'll see you later. Um, as a label guy, I was most disappointed with the fact that he, one of the first things he did that was really weird was try to fuck over the label by saying, yeah, you know, all those records you printed. Yeah, I don't think I want to put it out. And I'm like, we're not stopping the label, man. That's you. You as a label guy should know that's happening. We signed the contract. We're doing it. So, um, so yeah, it never happened. I mean, the record came out, but uh it was supposed to be four songs, and I think it ended up being two. And the other two songs, I have no idea where the fuck they are at this point. So, I, I, I was the one interview I read with yours when you made a little, a little comment, didn't elaborate, that you said that you've had conversations with Ian Mackay about guilty of being white before. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in the in the backyard of, of, of Tesco's house. As mm-hmm. We talk about in the memoir where we argued about it, you know. And I was like, "Yeah, man, I've been doing this shit long enough since '77. The swastika shirts, and you know, the push, push in the bush thing, and to be outsider among outsiders. And you never hear me talk about that very much because nobody. I never felt physically threatened or worried. But um, he goes, "Well, you don't know what it's like to be in D.C." I go, I know what it's like to be in America. (laughs) So so you're in D.C., so you're you're getting a small taste of what I get like 24 fucking hours a day. Bro, fuck off with this. And he didn't repudiate the song, of course, until, until Tom Araya did it with Slayer. And then suddenly he got to see himself through others' eyes. It was like, yeah, I guess it kind of sucks. I mean, you know, hob, you know, consistency is a hobgoblin of little minds. I'm glad he finally changed his tune on that one. But uh, mm-hmm. it, he was not willing to do so in Tesco's backyard in 1981. So, huh? Yeah, yeah. I always heard. Yeah, I always heard he kind of like tur- was turned off by the song when he saw some of the people who embraced it. Yeah, of course. How how could you miss that there would be <laughs> that there would be a causal connection between yeah. you know these retrograde elements of uh, you know but uh, you know he's got a point right you know I, I you know I mean you can't deny a people a moral imperative because there's shit that happened 400 years ago I feel that way about Germans right uh, but of course it's 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 complex right because I believe the aggrieved parties should be able to complain about it forever and ever and ever. But they should be able to do so with the understanding like that the people that you're talking to have no dog in that hunt. You know, a 19-year-old German kid absolutely doesn't give a shit, doesn't care, doesn't, you know, it's not my issue what happened in 1943. Like a 19-year-old kid in Virginia, you know, does it fucking 16, 1700s of slavery. I got nothing to do with that. Get off my back with that. So, but, you know, I defend my right to complain about it forever. And I also understand that you completely ignoring me. But, you know, then to do the, the song thing, you guys had to invest a lot of energy in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely not. De- definitely not his best moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the art of performance is something that I see you talk about frequently that you're very interested in the art of performance. Um, and I, and a couple early influences I've seen you mention is Klaus Nomi and the plasmatics. Yeah. Now you, you're, you're very interested in, um, good performance and that's not gimmicky. That's a good performance. What, Give me, give me a little. In- well, it's it's hard to say not gimmicky when you see the plasmatics because, of course, people people <laughs> pay attention to latter day plasmatics. But you know, I was gifted to see them earlier, and same with Klaus Nomi. But the funny thing about Klaus Nomi is that you know, like I, I'll, I'll give you an example. At one point, I, I decided that uh, I don't feel like wearing clothes, right? Just didn't feel like it. Whatever. And people spent invest all this energy in concealing their nakedness. I was like, oh fuck it, tie. Like, you know, I'm bumping around my room trying somebody's knocking, trying to find shorts because I don't want to expose them to my nudity. It's like, ah, oh, fuck that, bro. I'm just tired of this. And I went through odd periods in life where I just stopped, stopped combing my hair or stopped sleeping <laughs> in a mattress. I just started sleeping on the floor because I you know, and so I got I did this thing with nudity and I and I said, Well, most people don't uh, conceal their nudity because people are going to laugh at them. And so I started walking outside my house naked. And I, I lived on the edge of a field and there was walkways and pathways that people would hike to the lake that was near the house. It's on Stanford campus. 
And at first, that was always everybody's reaction to go, oh, there's a naked guy there. But they're just dealing with their own uncomfortability. And when they look at you and you're not at all uncomfortable with it, then it becomes weird and uncomfortable for them. Right. Like it's just a, a, transfer, <laughs> a, a, trans, a transference thing. So it, this is, you know, it's kind of very much like that, that Klaus Nomi was doing something that on the face of it was comical with the makeup, you know, and the high operatic singing voice. But if you looked in his eyes and you looked in his face, he absolutely was not fucking joking. And that was totally powerful. And the same thing with Wendy o. Williams. Yeah, she's on stage with her titties out and the black, you know, the black electrical tape. But, um, but there, you know, she, she had it, man. You look in her eyes and it was like, nah, you know, it might be funny, but it's no fucking joke. And that kind of, and Richard, a little Richard did this as well. There's a concert that he did in Paris. And at one point he's, he's like got his socks on and his pants, he's shirtless. And it's like somebody in the audience has pissed him off and the music is still, they're still playing this vamp. Like, you know, I, like expecting him to jump back into the song and he was just in some other place. And again, under normal circumstances, you might be, Hey, look, you look at Richard's he's, he's out of it, but it completely commanded respect because he had opened, like all his chakras were open and he was just like open to the universe. The universe was moving through him into the audience and it was fucking powerful. You looked away or you were enveloped by it. So I, I've, I've lived for moments like that on, uh, in my own performance and the performance of others. These are states of nirvana um, and important, important to get to. Otherwise what you're doing is just shtick, right? So. Yeah. I, I, I get, I get the, I get the line you're, you're, you're drawing. Yeah. yeah, we we played a show in Nottingham, England at one point, and I'm watching the band play before us, and I'm really digging them. But I'm having this eerie this eerie thing, like I don't know what's happening. And I'm looking, and then finally it dawns on me, like they've done two, three songs. I go, oh, shit, they're Oxbow interpreters. <laughs> and I go, I should franchise this shit out, get these guys to do but. <laughs> The soul of it, it was mimicry, but the soul of it was absent. The guy was doing what he had seen me do, but without the emotional basis for it. So it was just kind of funny. It was like watching, it was like watching kids do, you know, it was just, it was, it was cute. It was funny. So the first time that you took your clothes off at a show, um, was after, now correct me if this is wrong. It was after you played a show in Lansing with minor threat and your pants were just soaked with sweat and you didn't have money to uh, wash your pants. So you said, going forward, going forward, I'm going to not wear my pants. No, no, no. This was kind of, I've always had a weird kind of competitive thing with Rollins. And he, um, at one point, uh, word had gotten back to me that he had decided that not only was he not going to wash his clothes for the duration of a tour, but he was not even going to take them off. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, uh and so i you know i i i said fuck yeah okay I, i'll fucking meet you and i'll raise you and at one point i woke up we were staying with the fix in uh lansing michigan and one of the uh steve is hey eugene come here and i woke up and i'm looking around for my stuff to put on i didn't have it, it was fucking grab the towel and walk in he goes look at that he's looking in the washing machine he goes i put a full cup of soap in there and the water is still black. I go, what's in there? He goes, your clothes. 
I was like, ah, you fucking ruined my fucking experiment. He said, well, you took the pants off so I could do it. So yeah, because it was hot last night. Fuck it, I should never have taken them off. And <laughs> and so then he says, and then he, of course now he the door was open. He goes, moreover, if you're jumping around on stage in those boxes I gave you, he gave me his underwear then because I was broke. He goes, I'm leaving the stage. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I don't want your dick flopping around on the stage. I go, why do you give a shit? He goes, it's distracting. I go, my penis distracts you. You got bigger issues happening than if that's the issue. You know, he's like, ah, no. So he says, he's, after they get out of the, just give me my shit after the dryer and don't touch it again. So he gets my stuff out of the dryer and he sews the, the zippers, uh, uh, the flies of all the boxer shorts shut. <laughs> So I can wear boxers on stage and uh, without my dick flopping out because it disturbs him. And so when he left the band to go to med school, the first show after that, I was like, Steve's no longer with the band and I'm fucking naked. And I think that was the, I think that's when it happened. So it never happened when Steve was in the band. So it probably didn't happen until the, the until 86 or 87 which incidentally of course if you if you're paying attention to timelines is when i was losing my mind but it was also incredibly liberating since i had already experimented with nudism before then the worst show you ever played was opening for bad brains in oakland oh you've done your homework yes okay (laughs) what happened Oh man, they just got in my fucking head. It's just like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. It's it's embarrassing for me to think about. I can't. Ah man, I can't, I can't. I just, I fucking, I buckled, I folded. It was terrible. I, I felt like that band I was just talking about that was kind of doing the Oxbow imitation. I, I, I mean, I was very comforting and supportive of them but these guys were just looking at me and i wasn't doing a bad brains imitation but i was just off my fucking game it was at the omni it was terrible and i you know i've talked to other guys in the band and they say oh no it was a fine show so yeah but i was fucking terrible i just but whatever man i couldn't couldn't concentrate it was you know they existed in my mind is so large like i couldn't get to what i wanted to do because the image of what they had done was just it was was blotting out my memory and i just fucking it was shitty it was terrible it gives me it pains me to to think about it even still so they didn't even have to do anything it was just their presence yeah well no mostly it's about leaving the stage in that uncomfortable moment like you know i you know, I've, I've played with plenty of bands that hated us. You know, it's not like the, mm-hmm. the Minutemen hated us. I didn't give a shit, you know. Um, Husker Du, the, the fucking Greg Norton hated us. Hey, whatever, bro. Fuck you. I don't care, you know. But having to walk by the bad brains in the hallway as we're leaving the stage and they're coming on. I mean, because I was hanging out with those guys in New York, so I knew them, right? So it was not like... I could just kind of disappear into anonymity. It was just, oh man, I, just, I felt like apologizing, you know. Ugh. <laughs> man. Do you have a ritual or anything that you do to try to get yourself into the right headspace so that you do perform well? I just like to be left alone. I mean, I remember Rollins going through all this stuff, and it was making ah, I got to do, and I just, you know, I'll just find some place. Usually, inevitably, there's somebody on the support staff who's one of they, you know, they're projecting their feelings of nervousness onto you. And as they come to talk to you, as a, but everybody at this point, we've done it long enough, knows just leave them alone. Just, you know, and I'm cordial, you know, it's like, I'm not, 
you know, Eugene, what do you want to answer the questions? But typically I'll find some place to hide and I'll make sure one guy in the band knows where I am hiding. And it's a place where people can't easily get access to me. And I just kind of clear my head, you know, and, uh, and then make sure I've got a straight shot to the stage after. So I don't have to get caught up in whatever other non stage related bullshit happens. And then like, I just did a show at the soul crusher festival in uh, the Copenhagen and uh, the curtain, there was like, you know, three feet behind the curtain. It's a big venue is three feet behind the curtain. And so like, I'm behind the curtain. That is great. And the band, uh, one of the stage guys went back there to, to break down somebody's drums. He's like, oh, cause you absolutely can't, you can't, you can't, you, you can't see me back there. But he, you know, he didn't know me. So he left me alone. And then of course, you know, the first chord started the song and I could just go right from there to the stage. It was perfect. Just get my head together. So at what point do you duct tape the earplugs in? Is that on stage or before? No, no, no. They're already they're already done. I don't want to. I don't like to get caught in technical. That's why I say you know in our contract writer you have to have the mic taped to the cord um, because if it gets separated, like I know it will, I won't. I'm not. I'm not the tech guy. You know. Yeah. You got to fix that shit. I'm not gonna. I hate to see bands do certain things on stage. Like I hate to see bands drink water. It's like you can't make it through the set. Without drinking water, now I've got to be subjected to your fucking gustatory issues. Like we gotta, you know, what's next? We gonna pull out your crock pot? I don't want to see. You know? Wait, what about what about Jamie Stewart though? Jamie Stewart takes a drink of water between every song. You know, uh, I don't like that. <laughs> I, 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 lo- I, I love Jamie, and I know he does it like a comedian for pacing. Um, and you know, the reality of it is, when we did uh, Salminio together, he didn't do that. So. Um, yeah, or if he did, he did it when I wasn't watching, you know. Gotcha. Um, so, but he, he uses it like punctuation, which is fine. Maybe he's really thirsty. I don't, I don't, but part of his thing is kind of like the David Byrne nervous thing. So it ties in. It works for him, but I still don't like it, you know. I, I, but I don't like to see people walking along the streets eating food either. So it's just my personal weird thing, you know. Um, I like that one too. Why, why don't you like that? Well, you can't take the fucking time to sit at a table like a normal human being. <laughs> like a normal person. You were so fucking busy that you got to walk down the street eating that hot dog. Come on. get the. Fu- if you're standing by a hot dog stand, I understand it, right? You're like sure. walking down. I got a sudden urge to have yeah, a Yeah, but that's, that's standing. That's yeah, not moving. Yeah, it's not moving, man. So it's just a thing, you know? What other What other stuff do you not like to see on stage? Um, I don't like to see, I don't like to see the audience begging the, the, uh, the, the uh, performers begging the audience to dance. I think that's, that's desperate and and sad. Uh, I don't like to see compulsive entertaining on stage, you know, by way of Joe, like, I'm going to make you feel comfortable that I'm here. We're going to, we're going to have a good time. You know, um, what if you don't feel like having a good time? What if you're not, what if you're having a very bad time? And this is just a, you know, I mean, I, yeah. So, um, so like yeah, I tape the earplugs in before I get to stay, so I don't have to think about that shit. I don't, and if the and if it somehow happens that the ear that falls out, I'm not readjusting it. I'll just blast my hearing out with that ear because I'm not. You're not there to see me do tech, and I'm not. Look, if I'm having an argument with with you know my lover, I'm not adjusting my. You know, it's not. This is like I'm in the moment, man. This is yeah. we're it's like yeah. taking LSD. Once that trip starts, it starts and it goes until it's over, and that's the way it is.
don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.